This is episode 192 with author, industry-leading researcher, and a top-four visionary in the outdoor sports industry, named by Outside Magazine, Dr. Stacy Sims. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features the expertise of a leader in the exercise physiology and sports nutrition field for female athletes, Dr. Stacy Sims. We're going to learn how women are not small men, so be sure to share this episode with the women runners in your life because Stacy conducts a masterclass on the training and nutrition differences between the sexes. But before we start, I want to make sure we're all on the same lap count today. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry to give you the knowledge, the mindsets, and the tools to get faster, stronger, and become a more capable athlete. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage and invest in yourself, you'll be a much better runner. Don't miss our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos on everything from weightlifting for runners, injury prevention, how to run with better form, and a lot more. It's at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, so be sure to subscribe and you'll see every video we publish on a weekly basis. And of course, if you've never visited strengthrunning.com, this is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode was also made possible by ExoSkin, a brand of high-tech apparel for runners. They make seamless apparel right here in the US of A that uses a patented knitting technology that works in all weather conditions, hot or cold, and it works to reduce hot spots and blisters. Check out everything they offer at exoskin.us. Our guest today is a researcher, entrepreneur, and a scientist with expertise in exercise physiology and sports nutrition. Dr. Stacy Sims emphasizes the sex differences between male and female athletes and focuses on how women can understand and use their physiology to perform their best. Everything from training to fueling has predominantly been researched on men and written about by men. Women's hormonal variations tend to skew research data, so those results are often thrown out. As a professional athlete, Stacy also recognized that she was poorly served by the same recommendations that male athletes were getting. So she set out to change that through her work. She has written a book called Roar, How to Match Your Food and Fitness to Your Female Physiology for Optimum Performance, Great Health, and a Strong Lean Body for Life, where she breaks down her message that women are not small men. Through understanding their menstrual cycles, women can learn to cater their training, nutrition, and hydration accordingly. She has been named one of the top 50 visionaries of the running industry by DMSE Sports, one of the top 40 women changing the paradigm of her field by Outside Magazine. She's one of the top four visionaries in the outdoor sports industry by Outside Magazine and one of the top four individuals changing the landscape in triathlon nutrition as named by Triathlete Magazine. And she's here to help you with your running. Without further delay, Please welcome the one and only Dr. Stacy Sims. All right. Hi, Stacy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yes, I'm excited to chat too. Uh, The topics we're going to discuss today are obviously a little bit out of my area of expertise, but that's why you're here. And I want to be clear with the audience that I had some help coming up with these questions uh, because I understand that I have some blind spots here. So I want to dive right in, Stacey, and, and talk about, you know, one of your theses, which is that women are not small men when it comes to training and nutrition. Can you explain this a little bit more for our listeners who may not be very familiar with your work? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with how the tagline came up. I started teaching sex difference lectures when I was at Stanford and their undergrads in the afternoon. And the way to wake the boys up or the men up in the class was just come out and say, women are not small men. And then all of a sudden people are like, what are you talking about? Because it's something that people are like, well, obviously, but they don't really click on to, well, what do you mean by that? And throughout my entire academic and sporting career, it's been looking and researching and understanding that we have sex differences from birth. And it goes right down to muscle mitochondria proteins, to the way that women fuel for exercise, where we use more fat and amino acids versus men. Women can't effectively carbo load. Um, And there's so many things that are inherent to women's performance that just haven't been tapped into. Because all of the methodologies we know, the protocols we know, most of the guidelines to support nutrition is all based on male data. And that comes from a history of women being marginalized in um, biomedical research, the history of sport being masculine traits and not talking about women and not wanting to acknowledge the fact that women um, are a little bit different and then when you're doing the research on men, you're just generalizing to women. So when we really inherently look at physiology and the genetics of what makes a woman a woman, we are inherently different from men. So the reason why I say women are not small men is because most, if not everything that we know so far, except for maybe the past five years of of, um, exercise and, and nutrition research comes from data generalized from men to women. And it's just not appropriate. You know, I thought it was fascinating. I had a conversation with Lindsey Krauss, a New York Times reporter, and we were talking about some of these inequities. And she mentioned that all of the the research on exercise physiology is mostly done on men, and then it's just extrapolated out towards women. I didn't know that. And I thought that was just fascinating considering all of the physiological differences that, that you just outlined and how, you know, at the, the research level which I think informs coaches, it informs, you know, companies that provide gear and fueling products, etc. It just, we're not really learning what half of the market truly needs. And, and that was just kind of a, you know, a, a, just a fascinating thing for me to learn. I was so surprised. Yeah, well, over half the market, because when you think about who's the fastest rising population in sport, it's women. So I feel like women's performance potential across the board hasn't been reached. Like we look at Olympic capacity all the way down to recreational athletes. And then as you're saying, gear, um, not only sports gear, but protective gear in the military and firefighting, all that kind of stuff. If we were to really look and take the reference dummy into instead of a 165 pound man and put it into the parameters of a woman, we'll definitely see some improvements uh, across the board in everything that, that's happening. Another thing that I was very surprised in learning was that uh, a period can actually aid performance. Can you explain a little bit what's going on with women's physiology to cause this boost? 
Yeah, so this is where it gets interesting and primarily why women have been excluded from research because we have hormone perturbation. So if we're looking at a typical menstrual cycle. In a textbook, it's 28 days divided up by two inherent phases. We have the low hormone follicular phase and we have the high hormone luteal phase. But when we really dig into it, a period or a menstrual cycle isn't 28 days. It, it varies really. And it can vary month to month for women by a few days. And you have the low hormone phase, which is the period, the actual bleeding part that leads up to an elevation in estrogen right around ovulation. After ovulation, you have a dip in estrogen and then progesterone starts to come up, estrogen starts to come up. And then you have the high hormone phase, which leads into the next bleed period. And when we look at what sex hormones do, they affect every cell of the body. They're not just reproductive hormones. So it affects fluid balance. It affects cognition, reaction, core temperature. Um, it affects uh, the way we recover, the way that we fuel across the phases, um, and even the way that we can in build lean mass because estrogen is anabolic, especially when it's in isolation. So when we're looking across what um, different training mechanisms are and looking at how we can use our menstrual cycle to phase base our training, then we know that when we have a period, it's a sign of endocrine health. That means that we're able to absorb the training that we're going to do because if we have a period that we know that our bodies are really resilient and can take on more strain. So we look and we're like, okay, so now we're healthy. We have a period. Now let's look at how we can phase-based train. So we look at low hormone means that women are inherently, quote, more like men. So this is where we can go um, higher intensities. We recover better. Our core temperature is lower. We access carbohydrate more readily. Um, we can really hit it at that very top end anaerobic capacity. Then when we go to ovulation, we have that surge in estrogen. And this is where some women feel bulletproof and other women feel really flat until a couple of days later when estrogen starts to come down. But with estrogen being anabolic, this means that we have another opportunity to have a really hard training session and recover well. And then as the hormones start to come up, we move a little bit more into steady state. And then the five to seven days before the period starts, this is where women want to really look at deloading, working on running economy technique, if they're doing strength training technique under the bar. Um, so it's really focusing on mobility, functional movement and technique, which is effectively a recovery week. But it's working with physiology because then the body's dialing it all in. It's absorbing the hard training before you hit it again in the low hormone. Do you recommend that women keep track of their cycles along with, you know, maybe where in the cycle that they might be so that, you know, they can modify their training accordingly? A hundred percent. Because, you know, I can talk in the generalizations because I'm not specifically talking to one particular woman right now about their period. But uh, it could be that some women feel absolutely bulletproof for uh, you know, five or six days in low hormone phase and other women feel bulletproof all the way through. So when you are looking at uh, tracking your menstrual cycle, it's your training and how you feel and your training stress score. This gives you objective data of how to really dial in your training. Because uh, a lot of women will be like, oh man, I had a really hard workout three days ago. It felt fantastic. But today I feel really flat. What is going on? Did I not sleep well? Was I high stress? Did I not recover well? Did I not feel well enough? But if you have the objective data to know that 
on that particular day on or during your cycle, you always feel that same way, regardless of any other variables, then you know that you dial it back on that day. That's, I think, really helpful to know for a lot of women. Um, and, and especially, you know, I'd like to move a little bit into uh, Red S. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what this is and, you know, maybe who's at the highest risk of this? So Red S is Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And it is a syndrome that kind of encompasses so many things that women will complain about, and men too, because Red S isn't just a female syndrome, um, which is why the term female athlete triad got pulled into the Red S syndrome, because uh, we want people to understand that it stems from low energy availability, which hits women harder than men. So when I talk about low energy availability, it is when you are not consuming enough calories to support general health as well as training and training adaptations. The sex differences here are due to a neuropeptide called kisspeptin. Now, kisspeptin affects uh, neurons in the hypothalamus, and there are two areas in the hypothalamus for women, and there's one in men. So when calorie intake is relatively low in comparison to what your body needs, then these neurons are downregulated, which then affects your endocrine system, which drops your luteinizing hormone pulse, drops estrogen, drops progesterone. So you really effectively are having menstrual cycle dysfunction, your thyroid drops. So it affects all endocrine health. In men, their sensitivity to this is not as great as women. So they can afford to get through like fasted training, a little bit of low energy availability until they hit a point where they too aren't having enough coming in and their testosterone drops. So when we talk about relative energy deficiency in sport, this is the affect of low energy availability for a longer period of time. So you start to have bone stress, you start to have eye issues, uh, anxiety, depression. Um, you start having uh, cardiovascular incidences. You end up with uh, high resting blood glucose. Uh, you end up with lipid profiles that aren't indicative of an athlete. You're not a, uh, adapting to training, your performance is going down. And for a lot of women, they start putting on body fat and going, well, what's going on? I'm putting on this extra body fat. Um, I'm, I'm going to start training more and cutting my calories back, which perpetuates the cycle. And the thing about relative energy deficiency in sport is it takes a really, really long time to come back from it. Um, if we pinpoint people who are in low energy availability, and we can address that before they get into the full syndrome, then it gives them the opportunity to recover and then go back to training appropriately. When we talk about low energy availability and affecting it, we look at fueling appropriately for each training session. Because if we're fueling appropriately, then our bodies don't get into and stay into that catabolic state after exercise. When you're staying in that catabolic state, this perturbs that neuropeptide kisspeptin. And the longer you stay in that breakdown state after exercise, the more cortisol goes up, the more your body's in this jacked state of anxiety and metabolic um, perturbance. And it just causes this cascade effect of downregulating thyroid, which happens after four days of low energy availability. And it can come up as menstrual cycle dysfunction in women. And this is another reason why I'm notorious for saying your period is an ergogenic aid. If you start having menstrual cycle dysfunction, or your period stops, 
And we know that there's a significant misstep between energy coming in and your uh, available energy for um, supporting training and health. Now, Stacy, how could you potentially treat this? Is it, is it as simple as is just making sure that you're fueling properly or is there more to it? Um, in the early stages, it is more about fueling appropriately. So we're not doing fasted training. We're not doing low carbohydrate, high fat. Um, we're not doing uh, like, you know, even the intermittent fasting because we need to really look at what happens during training. When we are training, we are creating a, a fasted state in itself and we are breaking things down. So we need to be able to fuel appropriately to hit those high training stress loads in order to really get a strong stress. And then the recovery is super important because we don't get fitter during training. We get fitter from the recovery. So a lot of people, especially now with the fasted training or even the intermittent fasting where you have long windows of no food intake and people might end up training right at the onset of their no eating window. So they're not going into training fasted, but they're not recovering well. All of these perpetuate um, that catabolic state. So if we look specifically for fueling before, during, and after for each of our sessions, then we are able to hit the high training stress, recover from it, adapt to it, and we don't have this perturbance. For people who are trying to lose weight, um, we look at really fueling appropriately for each session and then maybe having some sort of lower calorie intake towards the end of the day. Uh, so there's ways of manipulating what people want, but really honing in and fueling appropriately for each training session to keep them out of that low energy state. If they are down the track where they are, for, especially for women having menstrual cycle dysfunction or amenorrhea, then it's a different story where we look at dropping training volume. Um, we look at keeping calorie intake elevated, especially protein fueling for specific training sessions. And if they can stop training, which is a rarity um, due to psychological components or in my world, working with professional athletes who have contracts, then we really look at what the training load is and how we can inherently fuel for each one of those to keep them out of a catabolic state until they get a, an LH surge and start to get some estrogen coming back up. Um, so it is a little bit of a independent case case basis, but basically it's fueling for that stress and recovering from it. I'd love to talk a little bit more about diets. I know that you're not a fan of quote unquote fad diets, but what do you generally suggest for fueling, you know, as a general nutrition program, not necessarily, you know, what you might eat or drink during a long run or during a, a particularly difficult workout, but, you know, just your general nutrition of what you're eating outside of your workouts. Yeah, I ascribe really by the 80-20 rule where you have 80% of the time you're like spot on following things and then you have 20% of the lifestyle factor, right? So it has to be fun. I um, get really frustrated when people are so dialed into what are my macros and how many calories per kilogram of body weight and all that kind of stuff, because that that puts too much stress on things. So it's really eating low on the food chain, looking for as many colorful fruit and veg that you can have, looking for really good lean protein. If you need to supplement protein, then looking for a really 
high quality uh, protein powder that's been embedded so it doesn't have fillers or flow agents or added hormones. Um, and then the fun factor is, yeah, you know, people want a glass of wine or whiskey or they want dark chocolate or they're going away on vacation. So all of that comes into play. But the basic general idea is you're having lean protein, you're having really good fruit and veg, you're having some really good whole grains that contribute to the protein intake. And it's for me, they all in the eye of taking care of gut and gut health because the the gut microbiome is so essential for hormone production, for um, your mental stability, reducing anxiety, reducing depression, concussion um, recovery in case people are, are inherently prone to concussion or have had a few concussions. Um, for bone, mineral density, so many factors in health are affected by the gut. Now, what about uh, if you happen to eat a, a vegetarian or even a vegan diet? Is there any specifics uh, that those folks need to worry about or just think a little bit more, uh, think differently about? Um, it's more staying And in full disclosure, I uh, became a vegan when I was 14. And I was primarily vegan until I started racing at a high level. And then I added a little bit of dairy back in. And so I fluctuate between. Um, so with the eye to that, looking at the dietary protein intake, it's really making sure that you hone in on high leucine availability and high quality protein. So if you're using a vegan protein powder, it's looking at adding some fermented branched chain amino acids just to boost the overall leucine quality in that in that protein powder. Um, and then when you're looking from a very vegetarian standpoint, it's you know having a little bit of dairy or if you are uh, a vegetarian that also eats eggs, then making sure that you have some good uh, quality amino acid from the egg um, consumption. And when we're looking across the board, we don't have to worry about uh, B12 in vegans because there is a lot of high quality B12 that comes from things like nutritional yeast flakes that are often used, seaweed. Um, and when we talk about iron, iron deficiency, that's a, a moot point really in vegetarian and vegan diets because the body becomes very adept at absorbing iron from non-heme sources. Um, so the primary issue that a lot of vegans and vegetarians have is that protein content and really honing in on what the quality of the protein is. That's great to know. Now, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, training considerations. And, and I know that you were a triathlete. What was some of the common advice that you might have received that didn't serve you very well as you were competing? Yeah, uh, so I actually got my start as an ultra runner. And then gravitated into triathlon, but a lot of it um, was following coaching protocols that were based on male male physiology, really. And it's like, um, you know, you want to lose weight, you have to do faster training. If you want to get faster, then you have to do a block of high intensity training um, three or four days in a row. And again, these aren't appropriate for female physiology. You know, fasted training doesn't work for women. It puts more body fat on. Women can handle two really super high intense days in a row, and then they need a little bit of recovery, and that has to do with uh, muscle enzyme differences between men and women. And the long volume um, stuff that comes with ultra running and triathlon is high volume training. And women are inherently already at 
uh, max fatty acid oxidation capacity. They have a huge amount of aerobic capacity. So it's less about volume for women and more about the intensity and strength. And when we start looking at, you know, how are we uh, designing training programs and we're looking specifically, you know, overlaying of a menstrual cycle, but within that as well, looking at what kind of the quality training is for women. Um, so when I was competing and getting into points where I was getting overtrained or getting burnt out, retrospectively looking back, it was due to high volume and low food intake, which is all pushed on me through coach coach mentality back in the day. Yeah. And speaking of coach mentality, I, you know, I'd love to know as a coach myself, how can coaches, especially male coaches who, you know, these issues just might not be front and center in their, in their minds. How can we help our female athletes improve their performance and stay healthy at the same time? You know, how can we just be better caretakers of our athletes? So the conversation about having a menstrual cycle or are you on an oral contraceptive pill, all of that still feels a little bit taboo in the older set. Um, it's becoming easier to have that conversation in the up-and-coming coaches, the development coaches. So it's broaching that conversation with your athletes. And even if the coach feels comfortable, the athlete might not feel that comfortable, again, depending on age, young and older. It's all, you know, still a little bit in that tabooness. So there's some really good digital platforms that have come out that really help encroach that that conversation and, and your ability to track where your athlete is. So Fit Woman came out with a coaching platform first, and that is being able to see where your athlete is in their menstrual cycle. Wild AI is an app that's come out that is using artificial intelligence that is based on a woman's perspective, not a male perspective. So it feeds forward in as much data as a as the athlete puts in, then it really nails down their particular cycle. And on the Wild AI coaching platform, the coach can go in and see all the nuances and see if there's a little bit of menstrual cycle dysfunction coming up. What's the training stress for? Where is the woman in her cycle? And you can have that conversation through the digital platform instead of that overt face-to-face until it becomes more comfortable. And the other aspect about having some digital platforms to help is then you can definitely keep track. So if you're writing a training program for someone, you're like, oh, man, I, uh, I forgot to ask where they are in the menstrual cycle. Or are they perimenopause or did they start a new oral contraceptive pill? Then you can call up the digital platform and see exactly how they are, what they're feeling, where their training is the most stressful within their menstrual cycle. So it's opening up a whole new world for that conversation and dialing things in for coaches. Yeah, I think the use of a, a digital platform like that, where you know it's almost like an objective third party that you know there isn't necessarily as much interaction between the coach and the athlete. And when you know you potentially have some reservations about discussing these issues, I think that can be a really effective way of the coach getting the information that they need, the athlete providing the right information, and then using it properly to design a more effective training program. Yeah, and it also uh, opens the eyes a lot to the athletes because for a lot of athletes, they might just know when their period starts, but they're not aware of what the cycles are um, or the phases and you know how that might affect their training. So it becomes an education tool for the athlete as well. 
And then as you get down the track, then it becomes really powerful in really pulling the woman's performance potential out because now both individuals, both the coach and the athlete are educated and understanding more what's going on. Now, Stacey, we do have a lot of master's runners who listen to this podcast. Can you share some key points of, of what women who are in menopause or postmenopause, what should they be aware of as, you know, their physiology is shifting at this stage of their lives? Yeah. Uh, so menopause actually, we like to say is the birthday of the rest of your life because menopause in itself is just one date on the calendar marking 12 months of no periods. The time before that is perimenopause, and this is where most of the changes happen and where there is not a lot of information. Um, so in mid-40s, women usually start to question what's going on. They're like, I'm getting tired. I'm not sleeping well. My training's not working for me. I'm not adapting. I'm getting slower. And it's because you're starting to have the shift in those hormones. Periods might still be regular, but when you have uh, an anovulatory cycle, meaning that you you know you don't release an egg, then you're not going to have progesterone, but you still will have a period. And you start to have this misstep of estrogen-progesterone ratios. And with that misstep, women's bodies start to change where they become more insulin resistant. They put on more visceral abdominal fat. Um, they start to lose lean mass. Uh, they're having issues sleeping, not necessarily from vasomotor symptoms, but just from different uh, issues that are happening with neurotransmitters because estrogen directly affects serotonin and dopamine. Um, so when these things start happening and women are like, what's going on? This is where we want to really intervene and say, okay, well, now the body is starting to have changes going on from hormones that are shifting, we need to look at other stresses outside of that that can replace what those hormones used to do. So instead of turning to hormone replacement therapy or looking at some other ways of manipulating those hormones, we look at the training stress. So as I was saying earlier, where women are really adept to uh, that long, slow stuff, we don't need to implement more of that at this time frame. What we need to do is we need to work at top, top end of intensity because women start to lose that ability to produce power from a neuromuscular standpoint where the contractile um, aspects of the muscle start to slow down. So we need to have a stimulus to produce that through plyometric work or heel bounding. Uh, we want to lift heavy. So we want heavy resistance training again on that neuromuscular aspect, not about the hypertrophy. So we want to be able to recruit more fibers per contraction to maintain strength and speed. We also want to look at doing that top-end anaerobic capacity for runners. If you're looking at um, the, the VO2 max work, the top-end sprint work, because that helps with metabolic aspects where it improves um, glucose metabolism. It improves uh, your fueling aspects within each session, and it also helps with bone mineral density. It helps decrease the signaling for visceral um, adipose tissue. And when you start to do that before you hit that one point in time in menopause, then to carry it through to postmenopause, you have limited body composition changes and you are able to keep progressing and achieving your performance. Because the one thing that a lot of women think is that when they hit menopause or they go through perimenopause into postmenopause, that they're going to gain weight. But if we manipulate our training 
and we add the heavy resistance training, we add the high intensity work, then it mitigates that weight gain. This is really fascinating to hear, Stacy, and it's just kind of opening my eyes up to a lot of the huge differences in in men and women at different stages of their lives. And thank you just so much for having all this expertise. Now, I do want to get back to something we were talking about earlier. I told you would jump around a little bit. <laughs> you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, the research in exercise physiology hasn't really included women since the results are all skewed to, to varying hormone levels. And all that data is effectively thrown out. Uh, and you did mention, you know, maybe in the last five years, they're starting to do more studies and research on women. What are we now learning from the current research that either includes or focuses exclusively on women? Are there, has there been any really fascinating findings or, or um, you know, counterintuitive findings? Well, to me, no, because I've been in this for so long and know anecdotally and through small pilot studies what inherently needs to be done. But now that we're having more robust studies, it's good to see that people are, are understanding that things like cold water immersion responses are different for men and women. So if we're looking at recovery um, for ice baths, it works for women, but not for men, because there are inherent uh, post-exercise blood flow differences. For women, we will vasodilate, so blood goes to the periphery first, and then vasoconstrict. So cold water immersion works for women, not for men. It also enhances metabolic control in women, but they don't need as cold of a temperature as men. We look at protein needs. So the recommendations for protein needs across uh, female athletes has gone up because now they're looking at the fact that women use more amino acids during fueling or fueling sessions training versus men, and they need more circulating amino acid pool to actually trigger muscle protein synthesis. Looking at carbohydrate intake and carbohydrate needs vary across the menstrual cycle. So those guidelines are changing. We're looking at the age aspect where women have like this one definitive turning point in life where we were just talking about menopause, but men have more of a longitudinal aspect for aging. So the needs of master's athletes as well. So we're looking at training protocols, nutrition protocols, how much protein is needed. So it's really fantastic to see that these things are coming out in more robust research and when we start looking at things like oral contraceptive pill, they used to say, oh, there's no difference. But now we're really able to dig in and see how oral contraceptive pills, we're talking about combined estrogen and progesterone, um, with their steady state hormone profile, inhibit certain recovery responses, increases oxidative stress, um, can reduce training adaptations. So if we're looking at elite athletes or um, elite age group athletes, having the conversation about what kind of contraception they should be using is also coming into, into play. Um, so it's been good to see this push in the past you know, four to five years where I've been sitting on this for, you know, I don't want to say how old I am, but it'll come out anyway, <laughs> the past 20 years, right? You know, and really pushing it and saying these things and trying to get people to understand that this is what's going on and having the slow wave. And now we've hit that tipping point. And now there's this whole swell of research in premenopausal women. Now, the peri and postmenopausal is, is the next focus. Where we're really pushing and getting some good data in active master's athletes. 
because most of the research now on perimenopause and postmenopause is all on the sedentary uh, obese woman or sedentary woman who now all of a sudden is is putting weight on and having public organ diseases, which is not what our master's athletes are. So it's been interesting to see, and I'm really happy that things are are starting to turn around and it's becoming the topic of conversation. Right. Now, you did mention postmenopause and perimenopause as two areas that we're starting to look into, you know, with more focus, you know, but where are some of those gaps in exercise physiology research that, you know, you wish we were paying more attention to, that you wish we had more clarity on? Well, if we could redo every study in ex-phys, that'd be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Except for, you know, the few that have been done well. Um, So there's these conversations around supplements, uh, like beet juice, not appropriate for women. There's a few studies that have come out, but it's still a conversation that everyone should be using nitrates. They should be using beet juice. Everyone should be supplementing with a certain amount of protein, past um, exercise, protein intakes um, within that that window. Um, So there are some really interesting studies within the nutrition side of things where you'll read all these guidelines and they'll say his, her, and they're still combining it. And then when you look at the references, they're like one reference on iron deficiency. And so I always question, well, how does iron deficiency have anything to do with protein intake? So it's really picking apart some of the guidelines and picking apart some of the studies on um, the supplement aspects that, again, is still generalized to women and, and need to be redone. You know, Stacey, I'd love to dive into in a little bit more detail, something you mentioned earlier about ice baths. Uh, I did not know that there were differences between the sexes in the response to ice baths. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what's happening there? Yeah. um, So when we look at what happens post-exercise, and we know that there is a difference in the recovery window between men and women, where Women will come back down to baseline within 90 minutes. Well, men will take, you know, just to maybe even up to 10 hours, depending on what that training session was. And that comes inherently through blood flow changes. So uh, with women, because we have estrogen and we have a strong vasodilatory response because women will vasodilate first. So that means all their vessels will expand to put heat up to the skin to offload heat when they first start exercising before they start to sweat, where men will start sweating pretty much within two or three minutes after they start exercise. Post-exercise, we still have some differences where women, again, trying to offload heat because their body's responses from a thermoregulatory standpoint are different. They will vasodilate. So all their blood goes from the central part, heart, Um, you know, the muscles to the periphery trying to offload a lot of heat. So a lot of women feel lightheaded, nauseous after a hard session because the blood is not central. Whereas men, they will vasoconstrict because their body response is, let's get that heat from the muscle, bring it back to the heart, and then offload it through sweating or offload it again through vasodilation later. But first, we need to collect all that heat and start metabolic um, recovery. So when we look at at what's happening from an ice bath standpoint, when men get into an ice bath, nothing happens because they're already vasoconstricted. The blood is already going centrally. 
But for women, because they've vasodilated so much, the blood is already in the periphery. They get into cool water or an ice bath, and it causes that vasoconstriction, which shoots the blood back centrally, which enhances that recovery. It enhances the metabolic return to um, getting more blood into the muscle to flush them out. And when we look at the studies that are done on ice baths, and they're done on men, and it shows it doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't work because there are these inherent sex differences post-exercise. That is so fascinating for me to learn. Stacy. I think you have an incredible gift of delivering an extraordinary amount of information in a very short period of time. Uh, it is just incredible to listen to you. You're such a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Is there anything I missed in this conversation? What are some, you know, maybe blind spots that I might be having here that you think you'd like to add to this discussion? Uh, I think one of the other things is in young athletes, where we haven't really talked much about what happens in the young development athlete. And when we look at puberty and what's happening, I see a lot of young athletes who are struggling with the fact that their body has changed and they're not really aware. So they're running suppers, they might put on a little uh, body fat, um, and they start really trying to dial up the training and dial back the calories, which gets them into that amenorrheic state. So when we look at puberty and the onset of puberty, um, boys will lean up, get fitter, faster, aggressive, where women or young girls, their hips widen, so their cube ankle changes, their running gait changes, their shoulder girdle widens as well. So all of their mechanics change. So they need to really work on functional movement, relearning how to run, working with efficiency, working with running drills, pretty much relearning how their body works in space and time. And when we start looking at the young athlete and trying to encourage girls to stay in sport, is it running or soccer or whatever it is that they love, if we dial it back and work more on the functional movement and the economy of movement and working on that whole functionality of strength, then this supports their body as it changes, knowing that it's just a temporary blip in time where they're slowing down in their performance. And then when they start to come out the other side after about eight months to a year, they're stronger, they're more confident, they move well, they are less prone to injury and more inclined to stay. So it's the ends of the spectrum that um, aren't having a lot of conversation at the moment. So the puberty spectrum and the peri-postmenopause spectrum. So those are the two conversations that I'm trying to get a lot of grounds for because women are inherently different through their lifespan um, and being able to support them at these different areas really encourages self-efficacy, positive body image, less social pressures and the ability to perform well and feel good with their support. Well, I'm really glad that we were able to discuss both ends of the spectrum there. Uh, thank you again, Stacey. This has been a tour de force of, of knowledge for our female athletes listening. Uh, if they want to learn more about these issues and learn more about your work specifically, what are some resources or, or maybe locations for you online that they can go to? On social, it's just Dr. Stacey Sims on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Then our website, drstacysims.com, and that's where we have uh, our courses. We have what research is coming out. Um, we're having a library of mini courses, um, some coaching resources. And then outside of what I'm doing, um, 
we look at WISPA, W-H-I-S-P-A, is a working group I'm involved in with High Performance Support New Zealand. Um, and because New Zealand is so small, there's the opportunity to affect female athletes and coaching pretty inherently. So we have a lot of resources there, uh, ways to look up what's happening from an endocrinology standpoint, if you're suffering from low energy availability or red S, puberty, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's that. And then in the States, it's uh, Dr. Catherine Ackerman with the Children's Hospital in Boston. She has a female performance um, clinic that talks again about all of this stuff and, and keeping our female athletes Excellent. I'm going to include links to all of that in the show notes on the Strength Running site so folks can just find that really easily there. Stacy, thank you so much for being here. And I really appreciate your expertise today on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jason, for having me. I appreciate it. That's our show, runners. Please visit drstacysims.com for more information, resources, and community on the topic of female physiology and training. You can also find her on Instagram at drstacysims. And a big thank you to Exoskin for making this episode possible. They're excited about launching a new men's baseliner and a women's lightweight pair of shorts in the next couple of weeks. They're going to make that announcement on their social media pages, so find them at Exoskin USA so you don't miss out on that. They're also offering 20% off your order with code SR at checkout at exoskin.us. I'm very fortunate to have discovered Exoskin a few months ago because they're making innovative apparel for hard-charging athletes. They use a patented knitting technology that keeps you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Their apparel has been used in Death Valley races and across every extreme climate. It's so versatile because their knitting technology, it just reduces the risk of chafing, blisters, and hot spots, and it's great at keeping you warm or dissipating heat. It also doesn't retain odors as much as some of my other gear. You can wear it more than once, and it doesn't absolutely stink. They use both copper and a synthetic treatment to reduce odor and friction and wick moisture. Plus, it's molecularly bonded, so it doesn't come out in the wash. And the good news is that they sell such a wide variety of products, you're going to find something you need, whether that's shirts, tights, socks, toe socks, compression sleeves, arm warmers, and more. Check them out at exoskin.us and be sure to use code SR to save 20% on your order. Thanks for listening. Thank you for subscribing and a special coach's pat on the back to those of you who've left a review for the podcast. That helps keep the show going. Run strong, everyone, and we'll be in touch soon.